Welcome to RiskWise, a show about money for Muslims, where you'll learn how to make smarter financial decisions without selling your soul. For the full experience, join us at no cost at riskwise.com. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to RiskWise. My name is Ahmed Munawar and I'm joined by... Assalamu alaikum. This is Saeed. Thank you for joining us once again. It's great to be here. We got a lot to get through today, Saeed. This is going to be rapid fire. Yeah, let's do it in under two hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Set aside two hours, you know, <laughs> clear your schedule because we're going to be a while. And there are visuals, so no, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, hopefully it'll be a fraction of that. But just to bring everyone up to speed, uh, if you've been listening, if you've been following, we've covered a lot of really important stuff up until now. We've talked about why intentions are critical to your financial success. And we've gone through in detail how to set financial goals that you can actually achieve. And now we're at a point where you've got the goals. They're coming from a good place. You have good intentions driving those goals. What do we do next, Said? Now, this is where things actually you know, hit uh, rubber to the road, where we actually have to take action on what it is that we've been thinking about theoretically in the past. And if you've listened to us before and you've thought, well, no, I've done this before, it doesn't get me anywhere. Goal setting doesn't work by itself. Uh, I, I, I haven't been able to accomplish the goals that I've set out. It, you're not going to be alone. I'm sure everybody has gone through that stage in their life where they've set some kind of goal, something that they really wanted to achieve, but they just weren't able to. So let's deconstruct that. What happened? If you did this before, whether it had to do with your health or finances or relationships or whatever, and you set this goal, you knew what you wanted, you started out with a lot of motivation and energy and you were you know, raring to go and ready to do it. But after a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few months, if you're lucky, that motivation waned and eventually, you know, the action that was associated with it fizzled out. Life happened, basically. Yeah, it's hard, man. It's hard. It's hard to do the things that we know are good for us. Making these consistent actions happen over time is not easy, whether it is going to the gym, whether it is, uh, you know, being healthy. I mean, how many times have you woke up in the morning and saw somebody uh, outside your house running out for a jog? You know, it didn't matter if it was cold or if it was rainy or snowy, they were out for a jog. You want to be out there too. You want to be running and getting healthy, but, you know, they're doing it and you're in bed. I honestly think I live in the wrong neighborhood. It, well, it, it feels like everybody around me is exercising in the morning. Like everybody's running. If, if I look out my window in the morning around, you know, seven, eight o'clock, like there's just like a nonstop stream of people running and biking, at least in the summer. And it's like, who are these people? Yeah. And, and really, is it that those people are just better? Are they just better than all of us? That they're just, you know, better people? They have, you know, better willpower. They just have better motivation. They, they're just better people than us? That's what I no. assume. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would I would argue that that is unfortunately a cop out. I, I mean, I'm sure there's you've known people in your life who used to be very overweight and they aren't anymore. Is it that they woke up one day with just this enormous level of willpower that that's it day after day? They were like, nope, I'm not going into my pantry. Nope, I'm not going to go eating any junk food. No, these people had some willpower you know, created, use that willpower towards something. I think what's interesting, if you look at that, I, that idea of losing weight, because it's so common and we all know people like that. And if you talk to somebody who's just lost a lot of weight and just was able to break through and, and achieve that goal, 
it wasn't like just it wasn't just like magic. It didn't just kind of happen. But right. they found a way to push through and make their behavior consistent enough that it became easy. Exactly. They were able to find a way to make it easy. And it, 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 we have to acknowledge that making these big goals happen, it's difficult. So why is it so hard, Ahmed, to accomplish the big goals that everybody sets out to do? So I think what we don't realize is that willpower and discipline, and, and these are things that we really, we really value, right? Someone that has a lot of discipline, we value them as being somebody that's very productive and successful, right? Mm -hmm. Discipline and willpower and being able to do the things that you know you should be doing, that's the key to success. Right. But what we don't realize is that willpower and discipline are actually finite resources. That's right. It's not something that you always have. Eventually, when you exercise enough willpower and you exercise your discipline, you're going to run out of it. Yeah, it's not infinite. It's finite. We have a certain amount of it. And the, the people that, that kind of achieve their goals and they lose the weight and they exercise, and we're using those as examples, but you can apply this to anything. They're not, it's not that they have superhuman levels of willpower. Mm -hmm. It's just that they were able to make the action they needed to take easy. And they're right. able to do it consistently as a result. And we'll talk about that. So what's important to define here is what you, Saeed, you psychologists call decision fatigue. That's right. Tell us what that is. So uh, our ability, you know, our brains, our willpower is, as we said, finite. And when you, the people who are running out there, they don't, they don't just have a bigger tank of this stuff. Uh, they have about the same as we do. And we're going to talk about people who should have a lot of it and what the effects of their, them are. But decision fatigue is the notion that eventually we all run out of this willpower. We all run out of this ability to make decisions. And we can show that uh, in a really, really great study that was done. So this is an interesting study for a lot of reasons, and you're about to see why. The study was on Israeli judges yep. who were asked to judge on parole cases. Mm -hmm. And they studied over 1,100 parole decisions. And they isolated for various factors. So they had Arab Israelis that were up for parole. And they had Jewish Israelis. And, you know, we all have our preconceived notions about who yeah. would likely to get parole. Who do you think they favored? They also isolated for things like the term of their sentence, how much of their sentence they'd already served, and the, the nature of the crime that they'd committed. And they right. wanted to see, you know, what had the biggest factor in the outcome of the parole decision. And what they found was that overall, out of those 1,100 decisions... Yeah, so let's take a step back. Hold on. Let's build this up. <laughs> Israeli Jewish-Israeli judges presiding over Arabs and other Jewish-Israelis. Who do you think they preferred? As a whole, the, the prisoners were 30% likely to get parole. Okay. As a whole, out of the 1,100 studies. Sure. The ones that showed up first thing in the morning beginning of the day were 70% likely to get parole as opposed to the average of 30%. Were there just Jewish Israelis showing up in the morning? Jews, Arabs, different lengths uh, of terms, different crimes. They isolated for all of that. It didn't mm. matter. And none of that mattered. What mattered is if you showed up first thing in the morning when the parole judge is fresh and he's had his coffee and he had a good breakfast and he's in a good mood. Good night's sleep you were much more likely, 70% likely to get parole as opposed to the average of 30%. And the other cases later on in the day 
were only 10% likely to get parole. Wow. So the person they favored had nothing to do with their nationality. It's just the time of day and the freshness of the judge's ability to make decisions. And let's break this down. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about judges. Professional decision makers. They get paid to make decisions. And if decision fatigue is a real phenomenon with them, I guarantee you it's real for you. Exactly. Now, there's another really interesting study that applies the idea of decision fatigue to money. Right. And in this study, it was an American study where they, they, they took low-income Americans and high-income Americans. Okay. And they asked them to ponder a car repair. Okay. Okay. Think about a car repair. Yeah. And one group was given an expensive car repair to, to think about, and the other group was given a cheaper car repair. Okay. Both within high-income and low-income Americans. Got it. And then they asked all of them to do uh, a cognitive function test to basically see how well their brain was operating and how, how they were able to make decisions. So they first gave them this problem, this big financial problem to, to ponder on and make a decision about. And then after this big stressful problem went through their brains, now let's see how your brain is working after that. Now, with the low-income Americans, they found that those who were asked to think about a, an expensive car repair did worse on the cognitive function test than those who were asked to think about a cheaper repair. Yeah, so the, the poor people had the worst brain ability after thinking about the most significant financial distress. And, and the, then it, the reason should be obvious, right? I mean, how am I going to find the money to pay for this? This is, you know, I'm stressed out. It's very taxing. And now I perform this test and I'm distracted. I'm stressed out. Yeah, financial stress is unique and it, it really takes away from people's brains. So not only is your brain have a finite ability to make decisions, but under financial distress, your brain's cognitive function is even worse. And the high-income Americans perform better on the cognitive function tests than all the low-income Americans. And that's not to say that more money makes you smarter. That's just to <laughs> say that when money's not a concern, when it's not on your mind, when it's not a cause of stress, you make better decisions. Exactly. I really like that study because it applies so well to what we're going to have to talk about going forward. When you're under financial distress all day, every day, or every month, or you have something looming on your mind, and, or if you don't have, let's say, an emergency fund, and that big emergency car repair has to happen, we can make very, very poor decisions. So let's acknowledge that. Let's acknowledge that our brains are not perfect, that we don't have an infinite ability to make decisions and we have an infinite resource of willpower. Let's acknowledge that when money is concerned and we're under financial stress, we're even worse at that. So then what do we do? Well, it gets worse, doesn't it? <laughs> it gets worse before it gets better, right? So it's not, it, it's bad enough that you are terrible at making decisions and no offense because I am too. We all are. But to add to that, you've got marketers and psychologists and an entire culture of consumerism that's literally trying to rob you of money. And there are examples of this everywhere. I mean, the, the new age technological example is if you're ever shopping and browsing online for anything from any of the major uh, online retailers or online brands, of course, you know that they have cookies that are being stored on your browser, right? But what happens in addition to that, they know not just the pages that you visited, but how long you stayed on each of those pages, which pages you came back to later, you know, what page you went from, 
and went to to a different page from there. And we kind of all know that. But what they also do is if at any point in time through your different browsing sessions, you've you know, put your email in for a newsletter or to sign up for a coupon or to buy something and they have your email address, now they can associate all of that browsing behavior that they have for you to you personally in your email address. And a perfect example of this, if you've ever bought anything from Amazon, they now know what you've browsed and every morning they're gonna send you an email about something that you've looked at recently and similar items every morning to remind you to come back. Hey, remember when you were thinking about this? You haven't bought it yet, we know. So why don't you come back and take a look at more, more of this stuff? I have a really recent Amazon story. Uh-oh. So I actually bought a mountain bike the other day. Oh, that's why you were, you were asking about mountain bikes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that you're an expert. I'm not sure why I asked you. But. <laughs> so I bought a mountain bike. And whether that was a sound financial decision or not is not the topic of today's episode. <laughs> Let's not go there. No, we'll, we'll need a longer episode for that. Uh, but in any case, <laughs> so I was looking for a car rack because now I've got this problem where I need to pick up the mountain bike in a couple of days and I don't have a way to transport it because it won't fit in my car. Right. So I was on Amazon looking for a, a rack to attach to my car. And I was, you know, looking through the reviews, looking to find the best one and the best price and so on. And then I'm on the page for this particular rack and about halfway down the page. And you've all seen this, I'm sure it says, you know, looking for a rack, package it with this bike lock, which all, which costs, you know, X amount of money. And you'll save this much if you get them together. Right. Because they know if I'm looking for a bike rack, I likely just bought a bike and I likely need a whole bunch of other stuff like a bike lock. Mm -hmm. So they make that offer to me. I'm likely to take it because if I need a lock anyways, I might as well save some money on the deal and package them together. And now you're going to get an email every morning about mountain bike stuff to buy <laughs> biker shorts and helmets and gloves and everything. I'm a sucker. <laughs> and it goes even deeper than that. I mean, you can easily see this if you have any kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews. Take a look at their faces when they're watching their cartoons or playing their video games. Just look at their faces. No, don't make an assessment about what they're watching. Just look at what the ha what's happening on their face. They are completely blank, staring, eyes wide open, glued to that TV screen. And that's not an accident. It's not an accident that these cartoons and games are able to attract kids' attentions at that high level. There's lots of studies being done in, in the context of education. How can we keep kids' attentions and educate them? But then those studies are being taken by companies, by marketers, by animators, by all these different corporations, and they're being used to grab kids' attention. So just look at their faces and you'll see evidence of this right there. And as a whole, spending money broadly is so much easier than it was 100 years ago. Oh, my God. Remember when people actually paid with like, you know, paper currency and like, like little pieces of metal? I don't know what they're called. <laughs> What are those what are those round things with like the faces on them? Yeah, exactly. Those coins. And then, you know, you took one step above that and now you have these checks that you had to write out. And, you know, nowadays if some old uh, man or woman comes up in the grocery store and pulls out their checkbook to write a check, everybody's like, oh, now people, we gotta wait. People do that still? Apparently. I haven't seen I haven't seen it actually personally. Now we've replaced those checkbooks with cards. So it used to be like you put your credit card down and there was like the shishing and then like you have the carbon copy come out and now you gotta sign it. Now that was a whole cumbersome deal. Um, now they got the then they had uh, you know, you swipe your credit card and then the receipt prints out and you have to sign it. But then that's cumbersome too, because what if the cashier doesn't have a pen and now they're running around trying to find a pen so you can spend your money? 
So then they changed that too, and then it was the chip and pin. So you stick your, your debit or credit card in the machine, you type in your pin number, no pens required, which is even better. But then even that's t- tough because what if you forget your pin and now that's a whole deal. So let's get rid of the pin altogether and now you have the tap and pay on your credit card. Just pa-bam, money come out of my wallet. I actually get really annoyed. And this, this is just a step on the point. I get really annoyed when the, the pin doesn't work. <laughs> or if like sometimes I use Amex quite a lot and they, they, they don't always accept the pin on Amex. So right. I have to actually like sign. And when they give me the pen, I'm just like, are you kidding me? This is the Middle Ages? I gotta, I gotta sign my name? Like, what, what's going on here? This is unacceptable. <laughs> I was, so I'm guilty of this as well. I was looking the other day at my bank account for my bank provider, uh, and I was wondering if they were eventually gonna release a tap and pay system, because I felt like a Neanderthal, you know, typing in my PIN number every time. <laughs> you don't wanna be seen, right, in the line, type, <laughs> punching in the numbers on the, on the keypad. <laughs> And then even what's, you know, looking forward, or I guess this is happening now, but it's going to happen even more, is the tap and pay with the, uh, the phone, right? Your near field communication chip on your phone, just hold your phone up to the machine itself. You don't even have to bring your wallet in the store because if you forgot your wallet, well, nobody leaves their house without their phone. Oh, yeah. Right? Just, just hold your phone up and smile and you'll be on your way. <laughs> and just money comes right out of your account, just like magic. And then the next step after that, which we already know is coming, is, well, what if you forgot your phone? Well, you're always wearing your watch, so just stick your watch up against the thing so that you can pay. Think about the progression of this, though. We're trying to, not we, they, the people, the consumer uh, behavior people out there in the world, the companies and corporations out there who are trying to increase their profits and take your money, they're trying to make you spending money easier to do. And and it's not out of the goodness of their own hearts because they want to make things convenient for you and give you a faster checkout. It's it's nothing like that at all. They don't care about you at all. It is profit, profit, profit. And we got to acknowledge that. So let's take a second and realize that that is the environment in which we live is crafted against our own personal interests. So it makes it even more difficult, unfortunately. So this is pretty bad. I mean, we're, we're painting a very bleak picture here. You know, mm-hmm. you are bad at making decisions. As am I, as is Saeed, as are all of us. I'm we sorry. It's, the tr- it's nothing personal. No. Nope. But it's the truth. No, it's failure of our brain, for sure. To make matters worse, you're already bad at making decisions. And now you've got all these other forces, very smart people with lots of money to spend researching you and your habits. And testing things in various markets to see what makes more money. Who are trying to get you to spend more money, whether or not that's a good idea, whether or not it's what you need. So incredible. what are you supposed to do now? You're bad at making decisions and all these forces are working against you. How can you make better decisions and protect yourself against these influences that are trying to take a piece of your wallet? Right. What do we do? Tell We've me got a man. couple of things that we want to talk about today. First of all... Decision fatigue, what that teaches us is that if we're going to make better decisions, we need to remove ourselves from the equation. So if you force yourself to make smart spending decisions every single time you spend money, well, that's exhausting. It's going to take a lot of effort and energy, and you're going to run out of that effort and energy. And it's just not going to work. You're going to fall off the wagon, you'll fall back into old habits, and you'll be wondering... Well, what happened? I had this goal. I don't seem to be making progress. What went wrong? Right. 
So there's a couple of things you can do to, you know, take yourself out of the equation to remove your brain from the from the process. Right. First of all, automate the important things. Right. Take yes. the big important goals that you have and find a way to automate the action you need to take to achieve them. Absolutely. And Saeed will give some examples in a minute. I'm the a big believer thing, in it. The second thing that we're going to talk about is how to develop habits that will help bring the rest of your actions in line. And that's difficult to do. But to, to touch on Ahmed's first point, how to automate the big things. We talked about last week um, Stephen Covey's idea of you know big rocks. The big rocks are the big important financial goals that you want to achieve. The things that we created smart goals for. It's the 21st century. Along with tap and pay and all that stuff comes the ability for you to automate the movement of your money through your banking and through your financial institutions. If whatever you have as those big rocks, so let's say, you know, you want, we got a lot of emails from people who are struggling to pay off debt. And it's a really big concern among everybody, including Muslims. Well, let's, that is a very good goal that we can set a specific smart goal attached to it. And how we make that uh, actually happen is by making sure it's automated. So if we have a, a $6,000 debt that we want to pay off in the next six months, well, let's not wait until you know a couple months from now when maybe we have a couple grand to put down against it. No, $6,000, that's $1,000 a month over six months. That's $500 each time you get paid. Set that up in your bank account and let the financial institution handle it for you. Every day that you get paid, $500 goes from your checking account against that debt. Automate those big rocks. Let it's me, the let 21st me stop, century. Let me stop you right there. Mm. When people say that they have this debt to repay and they don't know how to pay it, the first thing that we do is we ask them, how much do you pay every month to pay down that debt? Yeah, exactly. And they'll say, well, it's you know sometimes this much, sometimes that much. Okay, well, how do you decide how much money you're going to pay every month? And they say, well, at the end of the month, I look at how much money I have left over after I paid all my expenses and then I, whatever's left or whatever I can afford, I, I pay it. Well, there's your problem because nothing's exactly. ever left. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's ever left at the end of the month, right? It goes back to the paying yourself first, right, Ahmed? Absolutely. So paying yourself first is the concept that we focus as, as individuals, as consumers, we are always perpetually concerned with making sure everybody else gets paid. So we want to pay the bank to pay our mortgage. We want to pay you know, the landlord for our rent. We have to pay the uh, utilities. We have to pay your cable. We have to pay internet. We pay uh, everybody else. But what we should be doing is paying ourselves first. So before we go and take care of all those bills, let's take care of the bill of ourselves and our future so that this money comes out the day that you get paid and you've now paid yourself first and everybody else can fall in line. And as we had made in the example before with the jars, the pebbles and the sand, they will find a place once the big rocks are taken care of. And that's not to say that you don't pay everyone else. That's just to say you put what's really important where it belongs. Exactly. And put it up front. So that's that's automation. And we're going to be talking about that in detail as we go forward. Mm -hmm. The second thing is comes down to habits. Right. So well, everything that you can't create a computer system to do on your bank account comes down to you and your behavior. And, and why are habits powerful? The studies have shown that most of our behavior, whether we realize it or not, most of the things that we do are not so much deliberate decisions. They're mostly habitual. Yeah, exactly. And I think you'll find that's true if you take a closer look at your spending. 
It's true for a lot of things, but take a look at your spending. Take a look at how you spend money and you'll find that it follows a very consistent pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. And there's a great book on the topic of habits that I highly recommend people take a look at. It's called How Habits Work. Right. And what the author does is he, he just kind of breaks down the research on habit formation uh, and, and explains it in a really accessible way for you know people like me who are not psych majors. <laughs> and what he says is there's, there's three parts to a habit. There's three pieces of the process. There's the cue or the thing that triggers the habit. Right. There's the routine, which is the action or the habit itself, what you actually do. And there's the reward. Oh, that's amazing. Very few people outside of people who did psych know that there are things that happen before the behavior itself that trigger the behavior to happen. And I love this. So when you're faced with a habit, let's say it's a bad habit, right? The, the, the gut, like the knee jerk reaction is I need to stop doing this. And, yes. and then you just say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to spend money on this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And whether you realize it or not, you're relying on willpower exactly, and discipline to stop you from doing that thing. And when you're motivated, you may be able to stop. For a little while. But eventually, old habits die hard. Old habits die hard. There's a reason why old habits die hard. So what the author talks about is, is that the way to re-engineer your behavior or develop new habits is not to just say, I'm not going to do this anymore because that simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's, to, it's to develop habits that replace the old ones but provide the same reward and are triggered by the same cue. Right. Because a habit is what? Again, it's cued, it's triggered by an event and it produces a reward. Right. And if you can replace that habit with something more productive and less destructive, then you're good. So how do we do that? So he gives an example, and there's you can read the book for details, but he gives the example of of how he used to get up every day uh, from his desk at about you know mid-afternoon and go and buy a cookie. Okay. Okay. And he wanted to replace that habit with something more productive that obviously wouldn't you know make him gain weight, right? Yeah. So what and was the first thing he had to do? So he had to basically test a number of different theories to identify which reward he was looking for and which cue was triggering the behavior. So he knew the habit was going to get a cookie, which he wanted to break. So the first step was find out what the reward that I'm trying to seek with that habit. Yeah. And this is hard work, right? It's a lot harder to do this than to just say, I'm not going to get that cookie anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. But this is what's required to actually change your behavior in the long term. And what he found is that through experimentation, it wasn't, it wasn't a guess. He actually had to test his theories. He found that the reward he was actually looking for was the social interaction, you know, when he would go down to the cafeteria and buy a cookie, he'd run into colleagues, he'd see people in the cafeteria, they'd be eating, drinking coffee, and he'd go and he would chat with them and just kind of talk about the day, talk about how things are going, you know, shoot the breeze, right, so yeah. to speak. And that was the reward he actually wanted. And the cue was just the time of day. There was like that afternoon slump where he's kind of bored, a little bit restless, and energy levels are dipping. And that's what that triggered the behavior. So instead, what he did was... Every day at about 3.30, around the same time. Because he figured out that it was time of day that cued the behavior. Exactly. He would get up from his desk, go find a colleague, go to their desk, go to their office, and just, you know, chit-chat for 10 or 15 minutes, talk about whatever, right? Social interaction. That's what he was craving. Come back to his desk, and that was it. That was it. No cookie needed. 
and it was hard in the beginning. He still wanted that cookie because that, that, that old habit was difficult to kill. But eventually, uh-huh. when he developed this new pattern of behavior that produced the same reward and that was triggered by the same event, this became automatic. He would just automatically get up at 3.30 or around that time and go and find someone to talk to, talk for a bit, come back without even thinking about it. And this applies so well to finances because if you're finding that you're spending money on certain things, whatever it is, and everybody has their own vice, you know, it could be, you know, hopefully, well, it could be cigarettes, hopefully it's not, it could be books, it could be video games, it could be, uh, I don't know, shoes, clothing, whatever it is, whatever it is that you know that you're spending money on. And we Mountain should bikes. all, <laughs> hopefully that's a one-time thing, <laughs> uh, whatever it is, if it's mountain bike shorts, then we have a problem. Uh, but whatever it is that you have, that you're spending money on, and we kind of know what our habits are, hopefully, um, we need to recognize that just saying to yourself, okay, I'm not going out for lunch anymore. That's not enough. That'll carry you for a couple days. That habit has to be broken and it will take time. When you get that motivation, that surge of, I need to fix this, don't direct that surge into just killing the the habit itself. Direct that surge of motivation to doing some investigations. Direct that surge of motivation into finding what is the reward that you get when you go out for lunch. It probably isn't the lunch. It's probably the socialization. What's the reward that you get from going out for breakfast in the morning? It's probably not, you know, breakfast or whatever because who, who take out fast food breakfast isn't really good anyway. What is the reward that you're getting? What's, what are the cues that happen before that routine, before, that ha- before the habit starts? What's the cue that leads you into that, um, you know, bad habit of yours? For me, I just had some cookies after hearing Ahmed talk to me about this cookie story. So that was my cue. Now, I know I told Ahmed I, need, I can't be hearing about cookie stories when I'm at the office because we have a whole cookie uh, cabinet. So don't tell me about these things when I'm at the office. <laughs> what, what are your cues? That's what we want to hope to convey to you today. That Well, I, I we'll, think I'm, I'm not the problem there. I think the problem is the fact <laughs> that you've got a cabinet full of cookies in your office. That, that might be the more obvious <laughs> problem. I don't know. I'm, no, I'm not a psychologist like you. I'm no expert, but that's just a thought. That, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but so the point that we want to make is that, you know, willpower and motivation by itself will only get you so far if you leave it by itself. We want to, to encourage you to direct it into a certain order. I want you to use that power to create good systems that can carry you past the dip, which we didn't really talk about, Ahmed. Yeah, but the dip is the slump, right? That point where you're trying to make a new behavior consistent and you just hit a wall. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you're going to hit a wall. It's a guarantee. So when you hit that wall, if you have a a process or a system that you're following to re-engineer your behavior, then you'll be able to push through. If you rely on willpower and discipline and and your brain, you're going to fall into old patterns of behavior, guaranteed. Exactly. So we're going to get into a lot more detail with this in coming episodes about, you know, some more specific cues that we tend to fall into traps, if you will, right. that that affect our spending and that we we don't even realize sometimes and don't have a lot of control over. We're and going to if, talk about how you can defend yourself against those and right. try to develop more productive financial habits. And in this time, try and find out and diagnose what your habits are. And if you're having difficulty finding out what the cue is towards that habit, let us know. We'll help you out. Awesome. Saeed, this was, I mean, this felt more like a, 
more like a psychology podcast than anything else. That was my goal. Yeah. Is this what you covered in four years of psych? <laughs> All of it. This is the entirety of my degree. We did it in 30 minutes. Yeah. Perfect. We saved four years. <laughs> and $40,000 or more if you're elsewhere. Awesome. All right. So that's that's all for today. Thank you for listening. And inshallah, we'll stay tuned for next time. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam.